Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and man, we've got a huge news show for you this week, as I've been kind of uh, hinting at in the prior weeks while we've been doing the interviews. So much stuff has happened, and there's a lot of things I want to get through today. But uh, first of all, hopefully you guys all had a good uh, 4th of July weekend. I know I took some extra time off and really enjoyed doing that. Uh, one of the reasons I took the time off was to finish up my final drafts of the fourth edition of my book. Uh, that's a huge milestone. That's all been turned in now to my publisher. And uh, so that means it's time for them to do the, all the layout and formatting and all that kind of stuff. So uh, tedious process takes a little while, but really hoping the book uh, will be out by, uh, if I'm really lucky, August. But if not, certainly by September. And I want to at least acknowledge that Apple had their Worldwide Developer Conference last week, which is their annual, well, developer conference, uh, software developer conference. And that's usually where they announce their new operating system stuff, in particular macOS and iOS, which is for iPhones and iPads and Macintosh computers. Uh, and they had a really nice list of security and privacy enhancements that I will not have time to get into today. I will... See if I can't dedicate some time to it in the next new show. Um, we will have another interview between now and then. Uh, so that'll be a little bit off in the future, but I really want to cover that. They've done some really cool stuff there. But today I've got a lot of news to cover. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about Zoom and their end-to-end -end encryption story. Uh, on again, off again, and now apparently on again. I'll give you a Netgear router update because I know I kind of gave you a warning last week about that. I've got a little bit of an update for you there. We're going to talk about Adobe Flash and uh, its death knell and what it actually might mean for a lot of older websites that still depend on it. Then I've got a kind of long but important article about uh, somebody I'd never heard of. It's a company called Blue Kai. I think that's how you pronounce it, from Oracle. And, you know, like Google and Facebook and other data mining companies and a lot of ones you've never even heard of, uh, like this one. <laughs> Behind the scenes is collecting a lot of data, and this one, unfortunately, had a lot of that data just sitting out there for anybody to pick up. But it's a there's a lot more to that story, and I want to uh, spend a little time on that one. And related to that, in a very timely thing, uh, Ohio Senator has proposed a new privacy bill that's very interesting. It probably will never pass, but we want to talk about that anyway. Talk about an interesting new Mac malware. Uh, there's been a few of these around lately, but this one, again, has got some interesting points to it that I want to get through. Then we're going to talk about a few Microsoft stories. Some, most of them, actually all of them this week are bad. So lots of stuff to talk about there. Unfortunately, some uh, Microsoft Windows issues. I'll talk briefly about a new deal struck between Comcast and Mozilla, the maker of Firefox. That's not surprising, um, but something you need to know about. And then finally, we're going to talk about TikTok. And if you haven't heard of this, you're probably over the age of 25. <laughs> and... Uh, maybe not watching the news recently because they've uh, cropped up in the news a couple times and not in a good way. So, and that'll bring us to our tip of the week. So lots to cover. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get to it. So first I'd like to give a quick update on Zoom. That's the uh, home video conferencing service that has exploded over this COVID-19 era. Though I still don't understand exactly why. There's a lot of other great services out there, some arguably better services out there that are also free. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's all over the news, so um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this. They, As you recall, one of the things they really got beat up on early is some security problems. And some of them were just bugs, but other ones are more privacy-related. Um, in fact, they kind of claimed early on to have end-to-end -end encryption. But as we found out, that's really not true. And unfortunately, a, a lot of other companies have kind of the same claim and they kind of hand wave it a little bit. And basically the difference is a lot of a lot of these companies have encryption to and from the different point-to-point -point kind of thing, like from your 
from your camera and computer to their servers is usually encrypted, but then it's usually unencrypted and then resent to the recipient encrypted. But basically the, the crucial part of that there is that it has this unencrypted step in the middle, meaning that whatever the company is, in this case, Zoom could actually see and hear everything you're doing on this video call. And yet a lot of them still refer to that as end-to-end -end encrypted because the data is encrypted in transit everywhere, but it, it's got a layover and that, and that is the key. So uh, true end-to-end -end encryption means that uh, it is encrypted from the time it leaves my computer till the time it arrives at the other person's computer, including in a multi-way conference, which means that nobody in the middle can decrypt it, not even the uh, service provider, in this case, Zoom. So Zoom, you know, was called out on that and then eventually said, okay, well, we're going to offer end-to-end -end encryption, which everyone was like, yay. And then the later came out and, and we'll, as we'll see in this article, and the CEO was like, yeah, we're not going to do it for everybody. We're not going to do it for the free users. Um, and we'll get into that in a second. And then they got, of course, a lot of blowback on that. And so now they're kind of changing their tune a little bit. So uh, here's where we are now. Let me read a little bit from this article from Mashable. Zoom decided that the FBI might not need access to free users' video calls after all. The company behind the popular video conferencing tool announced today that despite earlier promises to the contrary, it intends to offer end-to-end -end encryption to both its paying and non-paying users. This is a big privacy win for those who rely on Zoom to chat with friends and family, as end-to-end -end encryption means that only the people on the call, not Zoom or some random third party, have access to the conversation. Notably, this change of heart follows criticism of Zoom CEO Eric Wan, who, in the earnings call earlier this month, said that his company would intentionally keep end-to-end -end encryption from non-paying users to better assist law enforcement. And this is his quote, which will probably forever be famous. He says, Free users for sure, we don't want to give that end-to-end -end encryption. Because we also want it to work together with FBI and local law enforcement in case some people use Zoom for bad purposes. Unquote. And of course... That's always the reason they give. But anyway, enough about that. Back to the article. Today's announcement reflects an evolution of that calculus, although there are a couple of huge caveats worth noting. For starters, Zoom calls will not be end-to-end -end encrypted by default. Rather, much like Facebook's Messenger, users will have to enable the added protection themselves. And I'll just stop here. I'm not sure if that means they'll have to do it per call or if they could set it once and forget it. I'm not sure yet. Anyway, going on. In addition, free users will have to fork over additional info before getting access to end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, from Zoom's blog post, they say, quote, Free and basic users seeking access to end-to-end -end encryption will participate in a one-time process that will prompt the user for additional pieces of information, such as a verifying phone number via a text message. Many leading companies perform similar steps on account creation to reduce the mass creation of abusive accounts, unquote. Uh, it goes on to say that an early beta version will be released in July of this year, so be on the lookout for that. And the article says, as I would, in the meantime, you're, if you're looking for privacy, consider a Zoom alternative like Signal or FaceTime that provides end-to-end -end encryption by default. Because when it comes to your privacy, there's no good reason to wait. Amen. All right, enough said about that. Uh, let's move on to Netgear real quick. Uh, I mentioned last week and the beginning of the show before we got to the interview that there was a big Netgear bug found that affects, like, apparently most of their routers. Uh, not the mesh routers, at least they haven't said that yet. Um, it looks like it's only the regular Wi-Fi routers. Actually, one of you listeners reached out to me about that, and I looked it up and found that out. Uh, it wasn't clear to me when I read the first article about it, but uh, I'm not going to read an article here, but I will give you some important information. So again, there's about security research, researchers found that maybe 80 different or almost 80 different Netgear products, uh, ranging from current models all the way back to models as old as 2007, uh, are vulnerable or at least potentially vulnerable to a pretty nasty authentication bypass hack. And what that means is, you know, as I kind of said then, your router, uh, the way it's configured is it runs a little web server inside of it. And so if you go to a, 
th that uh, IP address for that for your router, it brings up this administrative web page. You log in with your administrative credentials, um, which hopefully are good, but we'll see shortly that they're not. And then you can configure the, the router and, and save your settings. Well, this hack has a way to bypass that authentication altogether, meaning that it doesn't matter what the password is. Uh, if this person can get to the web page on that router, uh, they can basically do, they can hack it to do whatever they want. And that is a bad thing to do. Your router is your is your security. It's your gateway to the rest of the internet. And if that thing is compromised, every different device you have in your household connected to that router is, a, is then potentially vulnerable to at least attempts at a hacking. And the router can send you to malicious web pages. It can do all sorts of nasty things. Your router is something you definitely want to keep as secure as humanly possible. So one of the things I told you then was some of these routers, for some inexplicable reason, have a way to reach this administrative configuration page from outside your house, like from anywhere on the planet. Why anybody would want to configure their router from anywhere but besides inside their home, I don't know. But if you go to your uh, admin page and you find any sort of external monitoring or management, you need to turn that off for sure. But what I didn't know last week was that actually just going to a malicious website, if you just, from anywhere inside your home network, from your computer, your phone, uh, whatever, if you go to a malicious website, uh, it can actually run JavaScript that will hack your router from the inside. And uh, I mentioned that last week as well, um, that this bypass works on the inside too, but that means that some you know, computer or device in your house has to be compromised first. Well, if you can just go to a bad web page and have this happen, then, you know, your device doesn't even have to be hacked. If you get tricked to go into this page, you could potentially still have your router hacked. So this is, this is not good. For Netgear, they're, and I'm going to give you two links that I made explicitly for, for you guys for this. So you can, uh, something easy to remember, but I'll put this on the show notes as well. Uh, you basically need to find your admin webpage and look for, updates to your router's firmware. And right now they've updated, uh, I forget how many they said, in the dozens uh, of, of their products, you can download a, a fix, a software fix, that currently is just a workaround. It's not the permanent fix, it's just a temporary workaround, but nevertheless, I would do it as soon as possible if you have a Netgear router. And the admin page on Netgear routers are almost always one of two IP addresses. Uh, it's 192.168.1.1, or 192.168.0.1. And the passwords, the default passwords, get this, are either admin and then nothing, like no password. Admin is user ID, no password whatsoever. Or admin and the password of password, like literally P-A-S-S-W-R-D. Or no ID and the password password. So if you go to the login page, you can leave the, you know, try putting in admin and then password, or then leave the first one blank and then password, or leave the second one blank and put in admin to log in and that will get you into most Netgear routers unless you have changed that admin password, which I strongly recommend you do as long as you're going through this process. So you can go to the Netgear support page and look for this stuff. By the way, I would also recommend that you just go ahead and register your Netgear products and then hopefully they'll be sending you emails about fixes for your product. And yes, you'll probably get some email spam from these guys too, but in this case, it's worth it, especially for your router. Um, but I created two uh, Bitly links. Uh, Bitly is a, a web address shortener because the actual addresses are way too long for me to rattle off to you and you, you for, for you to remember. Uh, and again, you can find these in the show notes, but if you just want to remember these, should, hopefully these are easy to remember. Uh, go to bit.ly, which is bit.ly, bit.ly, that's the website that does this. So go to bit.ly slash netgear-fix and netgear-passwords. 
Uh, those are two links that I created that will lead you to the actual websites. One of them is a Netgear site that has the list of all the affected products uh, and any current firmware downloads uh, for those products. And the other one takes you to a LifeWire or LifeHacker article that kind of walks you through figuring out the default passwords for your Netgear router. Okay, so that's that. Let's move on. I got so much more to cover. So Adobe Flash has been around for, God, I don't know, 15, 20 years, really long time. And it was the original technology that allowed web pages to do fancy animated things. Most of them used, unfortunately, for advertising, but there was a lot of web-based games and things like that you could play as well that were all written in Flash. Now, since then, there's been standardized web technologies that are not proprietary that have uh, taken its place, and Flash is technically no longer needed anywhere. But unfortunately, a lot of old websites still use it. And to make matters worse, Adobe is cutting off all support for Flash as of the end of this year and in a very harsh way. So let let me read this article real quick. Uh, It's from Forbes, which I honestly don't usually quote, but because, I don't know, their content could be kind of weird. But anyway, let uh, let me read very quickly from this article from Forbes. It says, millions of websites will be rendered at least partially inoperable when Adobe Flash is finally killed off at the end of this year. Flash has been on death row ever since Steve Jobs wrote his infamous Thoughts on Flash memo a decade ago, in which he declared that Flash wouldn't be allowed on Apple's mobile devices because of poor performance, a lack of touch support, and the emergence of new open web standards. And I don't know if he said this then or not, but security has been another huge issue. Flash has had so many security problems over the years. Anyway, back to the article. It was a hugely controversial move at the time, but it hastened the shift towards HTML5, that's the new technologies I was telling you about that replaced it, and other open web technologies. With Adobe finally conceding defeat in July 2017, announcing that it would cease development of Flash. Support for Flash is due to cease at the end of this year, and an update posted by Adobe last week suggests that the end is going to be brutal. Adobe says it will stop offering Flash player downloads at the end of the year and will even block Flash content running from players that remain installed on people's computers. And this is a quote from Adobe. They say, Flash-based content will be blocked from running an Adobe Flash player even after the end of life date. Customers should not use Flash player after the end of life date since it will not be supported by Adobe, unquote. And of course, I've been saying for years you shouldn't be using Flash at all. So it's a good thing. Anyway, real quick, back to the article. Adobe is also warning customers off third-party players, claiming that, quote, unauthorized downloads are a common source of malware and viruses, unquote. And that is a huge caveat. That is, you should never, don't download these other players. They're very commonly laced with malware. So it goes on here and kind of estimates that there's hundreds of thousands of websites out there that are still uh, using this, and hundreds of thousands of the top one million, not just of the, God only knows how billion websites are out there, but quite a few websites. So they're just going to basically stop work at the end of this year. At this point, honestly, the ones you might notice, if you play some of those web games, uh, a lot of those web games are just going to stop playing. And I, just like Adobe, I strongly encourage you not to try to find any other, you know, knockoff Flash players. Flash was bad enough. So you're just going to have to suck it up and realize that that stuff's going to be gone. As well it should be. It should have died a long time ago. Hopefully those websites will re-implement something, uh, all that stuff in HTML5, uh, and they'll keep going. All right, so this is a little bit of a long article, and I apologize for that, but there's a lot of really good stuff in here, important stuff in here, so I want to get through it. It's from TechCrunch, and I'll just dive right in. It's about this technology from Oracle called BlueKai that was, re- like, hacked is a strong word because there was no password on the data, so it didn't take any hacking. You just had to find it. So anyway, let me read this article because it's um, it's going to touch on a lot of things that are important. All right, so here's, the, here's this article from TechCrunch. It says, 
Have you ever wondered why online ads appear for things that you were just thinking about? There's no big conspiracy. Ad tech can be creepily accurate. Tech giant Oracle is one of the few companies in Silicon Valley that has near perfected the art of tracking people across the internet. The company has spent a decade and billions of dollars buying startups to build its very own panopticon of users' web browsing data. One of those startups, BlueKai, and that's spelled B-L-U-K-A-I, which Oracle bought for a little over $400 million in, two, uh, in 2014, is barely known outside marketing circles, but it amassed one of the largest banks of web tracking data outside the federal government. That's a weird comment. The federal government has a bunch of web tracking data? Probably does, but it's weird that it just says that. Anyway... BlueKai used website cookies and other tracking tech to follow you around the web. By knowing which websites you visit and which emails you open, marketers can use this vast amount of tracking data to infer as much about you as possible. Your income, education, political views, and interests, to name a few, in order to target you with ads that should match your apparent tastes. If you click, the advertisers make money. But for a time, that web data was spilling out onto the open internet because a server was left unsecured and without a password, exposing billions of records for anyone to find. Security researcher Anurag Sen found the database and reported this finding to Oracle through an intermediary. Roy Carthy, chief executive at a cybersecurity firm Hudson Rock and former TechCrunch reporter. TechCrunch reviewed the data shared by Sen and found names, home addresses, email addresses, and other identifiable data in the database. The data also revealed sensitive users' web browsing activity, from purchases to newsletter unsubscribes. And it's worse than that. And here's a quote from Bennett Cyphers, who we had on the program last December to talk about web tracking uh, from the EFF. And he says, quote, there's really no telling how revealing some of this data can be, unquote. And then there's a quote here from an Oracle spokesperson, uh, Deborah Hellinger. It says, quote, Oracle is aware of the report made by Roy Carthy of Hudson Rock related to certain blue Kai records exposed, <laughs> potentially exposed on the Internet. There's no potentially. <laughs> anyway. While the information provided by the researcher did not contain enough information to identify an affected system, Oracle's investigation has subsequently determined that two companies did not properly configure their services. Oracle has taken additional measures to avoid a recurrence of the issue, unquote. All right, so let me just stop right there. Two companies did not properly configure their services. That is a very euphemistic way of saying they completely screwed the pooch on security. And realize the implication there is that Oracle and BlueKai collected all this data but then they were giving it to other companies too. Well, probably not giving, I'm sure selling to other companies too. And they had some sort of probably a policy saying, okay, we're going to give you all the access to this stuff. But if you put it anywhere, you better, you better put a password on it. But obviously there was no check and balance there. There was no way for them to verify this or they didn't. Well, they didn't, they didn't verify this obviously. And this is the, one of the huge problems with all this data collection. It's not just the original company that's collecting it. They're handing it off to a lot of other people too. And those people also need to keep it safe and secure. And in this case, this data was just sitting there on a public internet server for anybody to find, not encrypted, no password, no nothing. All right, back to the article. It says, Oracle did not name the companies or say uh, what those additional measures were and declined to answer our questions or comment further. But the sheer size of the exposed database makes this one of the largest security lapses this year. And back to quoting Bennett Cyphers from EFF, he says, quote, Fine-grained records of people's web browsing habits can reveal hobbies, political affiliation, income bracket, health conditions, sexual preferences, and, as evident here, gambling habits. As we live more of our lives online, this kind of data accounts for a larger and larger portion of how we spend our time, unquote. And he's actually referring to something I've, I've tried to shorten this article. I've actually cut out quite a bit. Uh, there was a reference to uh, some individual records that were found, and one was this guy placing bets on an online gambling spot. 
Oracle declined to say if it informed those whose data was exposed about the security lapse. The company also declined to say if it had warned U.S. or international regulators of the incident. Under California state law, companies like Oracle are required to publicly disclose data security incidents, but Oracle has not to date declared this lapse. When reached, a spokesman for the California's Attorney General's office declined to say if Oracle had informed the office of the incident, which is probably normal operating procedure until they work out a deal, but anyway. Under Europe's General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, companies can face fines of up to 4% of their global annual turnover for flouting data protection and disclosure rules. And it says turnover, I think that means annual revenue. Blue Kai is everywhere, even when you can't see it. One estimate says Blue Kai tracks over 1% of all web traffic, an unfathomable amount of daily data collection, and tracks some of the world's biggest websites, Amazon, ESPN, Forbes, Glassdoor, Healthline, Levi's, MSN.com, Rotten Tomatoes, and the New York Times. Even this very article has a Blue Kai tracker because our parent company, Verizon Media, is a Blue Kai partner. But Blue Kai is not alone. Nearly every website you visit contains some form of invisible tracking code that watches you as you traverse the internet. As invasive as it is that invisible trackers are feeding your web browsing data to a gigantic database in the cloud, it's that very same data that has kept the internet largely free for so long. To stay free, websites use advertising to generate revenue. The more targeted the advertising, the better the revenue is supposed to be. And I'll stop right there. The better the revenue is supposed to be. There's been actually some studies saying that the targeted advertising really is not worth the cost. In other words, like the amount of money you pay for targeted advertising versus generic untargeted advertising uh, does not justify that increased cost in terms of increased people buying your stuff. While the majority of web users are not naive enough to think that the internet tracking does not exist, few outside marketing circles understand how much data is collected and what is done with it. Take the Equifax data breach in 2017, which brought scathing criticism from lawmakers after it collected millions of consumers' data without their explicit consent. Actually, I'll stop. There was consent somewhere. Like whenever you signed up for that loan or signed up for that credit card deal or opened that bank account, I am sure that somewhere in that fine print was, we will share this with certain partners or credit bureaus. I'm sure you kind of did sign that way, you just never saw it. Equifax, like BlueKai, relies on consumers skipping over the lengthy privacy policies that govern how websites track them. In any case, consumers have little choice but to accept the terms. Be tracked or leave the site. That's the trade-off with the free internet. And I'll have issue with that here in a second. But there are dangers with collecting web tracking data on millions of people. Yeah, no kidding. Again, quoting, uh, there's a lot more quotes here for Matt Cyphers. He says, quote, whenever databases like this exist, there's always the risk the data will end up in the wrong hands and in a position to hurt someone. It also makes a valuable target for law enforcement and government agencies who want to piggyback on the data gathering that Oracle already does, unquote. Even when the data stays where it's intended, Cyphers said these vast databases enable, quote, and the rest, of the, the rest of the article is this, quote, manipulative advertising for political issues or exploitative services, and it allows marketers to tailor the messages to specific vulnerable populations. Everyone has different things they want to keep private and different people they want to keep them private from. When companies collect raw web browsing or purchase data, thousands of little details about real people's lives get scooped up along the way. Each one of those little details has the potential to put somebody at risk, unquote. Okay, so that, that's the end of the article. Actually, it's a much, long, much, much longer article. I just gave you my expurgated version. But there's a lot of really important points in this article. But one that wasn't made in this article is that the, even though advertising does make the web work for free, it doesn't mean we have to have targeted advertising. Newspapers and magazines worked on non-targeted advertising for decades. Now, I mean, it was targeted demographically. Like, you know, you're going to see different ads in Cosmopolitan than you're going to see in, you know, popular science or Life Magazine, or the New York Times versus the Washington Post, baby. 
But all that was done based on, you know, some rough, very rough demographics of who they thought was buying those magazines. It wasn't tracking you personally. It wasn't targeting you personally. And that, that advertising model has worked, like I said, for decades. So I think, it's, I think it's false to say that the web would cease to be free if we stopped tracking people. It doesn't have to be that way. If there were regulations in place and everybody was playing on the same level playing field, meaning that nobody was allowed to track anybody, we'd be back to where we were before all this tracking happened. So I'm not opposed to looking at ads, but I'm really opposed to ads looking at me. And it appears that Sherrod Brown, Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, agrees. Uh, he's got a new bill he's putting forth. This is my next story here. And this was reported in the Washington Post, and I want to talk about this. And reading from the Washington Post, it says, When was the last time you actually read a privacy policy? Most of the time, clicking I agree is just a speed bump to getting onto an app or a website. Even when I make a project out of reading the privacy policies in terms of service for credit cards and apps, I can barely understand all the places my data goes. And by the way, this was written, by, I think, by Jeffrey Fowler, who I'd really love to get on the program. He's done some great reporting on privacy issues. So again, this is written from, her, from his perspective. He says, So I was intrigued when Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio called me recently to say he wants lawmakers to stop pretending like we do. Quote, Nobody reads the small print. You end up giving up far too much data, unquote. Congress has been debating a consumer privacy law since before there were web browsers, but the United States still doesn't have one. On Thursday, Brown broke with nearly every past proposal from Democrats and Republicans alike to suggest a more radical idea allowing companies to take your data only when it's quote-unquote strictly necessary. For an internet economy built in part on tracking people, that's nothing short of a call for revolution. Brown's new Data Accountability and Transparency Act, released in discussion draft form, would prohibit most collection and sharing of personal data as its starting point. Data could only be used in ways stipulated in the law, such as providing a service you asked for, and no more. What a concept, right? That was my editorial, sorry. It could mean fewer companies selling your personal information, but also possibly fewer free apps and services. And again, I take some issue with that. Uh, here's another quote from Sherrod Brown. He says, it, it shifts the burdens from consumers. It would no longer be on you to read privacy policy figures to figure out what else is really going on. The reset, Brown said, would also compel companies to figure out business models that don't depend on surveilling consumers or emphasize collecting only anonymous data. Quoting again, he says, we just failed to establish clear rules about corporations using big data to dig into our private lives, and those days should be behind us, unquote. Now for a reality check. Congress has been able to reach a consensus about a privacy law for decades, and there are at least six other major privacy proposals pending. Chances are slim to none that Brown's proposal, called DATA in shorthand, that's the acronym for his bill name, could pass this year in a Republican-controlled Senate. Brown, who's the leading Democrat on the banking committee, doesn't yet have other members of his party on board. And I can only imagine the furor it will generate in Silicon Valley. But that doesn't change the potential impact of a senator leading the debate on privacy into uncharted territory. It's an acknowledgement of how bad the internet data grab has gotten for consumers. And it puts the targets directly on tech companies that make money by mining our digital lives. And then one more sentence that ends with, little, with one stat I wanted to quote here. It says, many Americans are disillusioned with the status quo. Nearly 7 in 10 say they're not confident that companies use personal data in ways that they're comfortable with, according to Pew Research. About the same number who admit they never or only sometimes read privacy policies. So I thought that was a good bookend to the whole uh, web tracking you know, story there. And kudos for Senator Brown for putting this forward. Uh, yes, it probably not likely to pass, but we've got to have this discussion. And honestly, that's really where things should be. It is just not possible to opt out. All these companies say, yeah, but you can opt out. That's not really effectively true. 
That's like saying, yeah, well, you could count all the grains of sand on a beach. Okay. <laughs> you know, you could argue that someone could do that, but it's, it's just not feasible. All right. So much more. We need to keep moving here. So, um, uh, there's a new Mac malware in town, uh, and it uses an interesting new tactic, uh, new tactic to get by, uh, Mac OS Catalina security. Catalina is the mo- currently the most recent version of Mac OS though. Uh, big Sur is the next one coming out this fall. Uh, here's an article from Apple Insider. Security researchers at antivirus firm Intego, 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 and uh, let's say Intego, have discovered a new Mac malware in the wild that tricks users into bypassing modern Mac OS app security protections. In Mac OS Catalina, Apple introduced a new app notarization requirement. The feature, baked into Gatekeeper, which is kind of is their sort of built-in security thing, not quite antivirus software, but close. The feature discourages users from opening unverified apps, requiring malware authors to get more creative with their tactics. As an example, Antigo researchers have discovered a new Trojan horse malware actively spreading in the wild via poisoned Google search results that tricks users into bypassing those protections themselves. The malware is delivered as a .d, uh, .dmg disk image masquerading as an Adobe Flash installer. See, there we go again. But once it's mounted on the user's machine, it displays instructions guiding users through the malicious installation process. In a tactic described by Antigo as novel, the malware asks users to right-click and open the malware instead of double-clicking it. Per macOS Catalina Gatekeeper settings, this displays a dialog box that has an open button. Normally, when clicking on an unverified file, Apple doesn't allow users to open them so conveniently. And you can't see this, but it has some pictures. And this is true uh, on the new macOS Catalina. When you, when you double-click something uh, to install something, if it's not verified by Apple, it'll just pop up one saying, nope, can't do this. Either move it to the trash or cancel. But there's a way to override that. And the way you override that is you right-click on it and say open. So that's basically Apple saying, okay, so if you're going to go to this trouble, you really want to open this installer, you're going to bypass our security things, we will at least give you that option. And when you right-click in, uh, on, a, on an installer and say open, the dialog gives you the option to keep going. It still says you shouldn't do this, but it now has the option at least to, to click open. And honestly, people are so used to seeing pop-ups on these things anymore. They just click, yeah, 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 whatever. And they just click whatever to get through it. And that's where they would be screwed in this case. So back to the article. Normally, macOS discourages users from opening unverified apps while making the process more difficult, specifically forcing users to head into system preferences to override Gatekeeper. And I guess I'll just skip the rest of the article. But basically, the, the other interesting thing about this is it uses what they call poisoned Google search results. And it's kind of tricky to get into, but basically what it sounds like they're doing is when you're looking for a specific movie download or something like that, if you give it a specific title, somebody has registered uh, Google search results against that, that takes you to this website and says, Oh, well, if you want to watch the movie, you need to update your flash player. And that's when this whole thing starts. All right, moving on. So I mentioned also recently about a windows printer problem uh, with a Microsoft update, a Microsoft windows 10 update that came out that broke a lot of people's ability to print. There's actually a few different ways that this breaks, and some of them are actually particularly bad, including what they call the blue screen of death, or BSOD, which basically means a kernel panic, or something really bad happened that screwed up the computer so much that you had to reboot it. So anyway, Microsoft has acknowledged this, and according to them, a statement they made, they said, after installing this update, certain printers might fail to print, the print spooler might throw an error or close unexpectedly when attempting to print, and no output, no output will come from the affected printer, unquote. So anyway, the long and short of it is they are working on a resolution. They don't have one yet. Keep an eye out for it. In the meantime, all you can really do is maybe install that update. And that's not for the faint of heart. 
and of course they have completely unrememberable names for these things. Uh, it's they're knowledge-based things, which well, I don't know why. I, I don't, anyway, that's a Microsoftism. But their updates have KB names or KB numbers, so it's KB four five six zero nine six zero. I know, just so easy to remember, right? But unless you really need it, I would just wait for the fix from Microsoft. Hopefully, it will be coming soon. This isn't the first Windows problem, though. There's been a whole bunch of them lately. I just mentioned them briefly. Uh, Windows 10 has an issue with uh, Gmail. Apparently, if you set up your Windows 10 mail program to uh, work with Gmail, some of your Gmails are just being outright deleted. Some are being uh, put in your spam folder. Uh, this is a Microsoft problem, not a, not a Google problem, and that is something else they are trying to fix. And if that weren't enough, uh, Microsoft just released a critical, uh, what they call an out-of-band update, which means not on the regular update cycle, which is the second Tuesday of the month to fix some uh, vulnerable codec uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, you don't have to do anything to get that. It should just be automatic. So the bottom line for all of this, stay up to date. Keep an eye out for those updates, and when they come in, apply them, and hopefully they won't break anything more. But now here's another story about Microsoft that's really ticking off a lot of people, myself included. I'm not even really a Windows user, but this is just un unconscionable. But Okay, so Microsoft has always had their own browser. Internet Explorer was the one for a long, long time. And they actually, Internet Explorer, because it was the default Windows browser and because most computers ran Windows, was the king of browsers on the planet for many, many years. And they actually got in a lot of trouble with some, I think it was European regulators that basically sued them saying, because you, you weren't allowed to uninstall it. And uh, in a lot of cases, you couldn't replace it with something else. So that was, you know, antitrust, right? monopolistic practices. And they got sued for that, and it took decades and decades. And by the time it was done, in the meantime, Google had released Chrome. There was already Firefox and some others. And actually, by the time that whole suit was settled, it was basically moot. But now they've basically gone and done it again. So Microsoft has replaced Internet Explorer with a, with a new browser they call Edge. Uh, they had originally written their own browser, but realized that was too hard. So they scrapped the first version of Edge and completely redid Edge on the Chromium engine, which is the kind of the, the guts of Google Chrome without all the Google parts. And Google, out of the kindness of their heart, has made that available as open source software. And a lot of other browsers you've heard of use this. In fact, just about all the major browsers except for Safari and Firefox, including Edge and Opera and some others. So naturally, they want people to move to this new browser, um, but the way they're doing it is not Good. So let me read from this article from The Verge, and there's a lot of snark in here, and I completely agree with it, so I'm just going to leave it all in. If I told you that my entire computer screen had just gotten taken over by a new app that I've never installed or asked for, it just magically appeared on my desktop, my taskbar, and preempted my next website launch, you'd probably tell me to run a virus scanner and stay away from shady websites, right? But the insanely intrusive app I'm talking about isn't a piece of ransomware. It's Microsoft's new Chromium Edge browser which the company is now force-feeding users via an automatic update to Windows. Seriously, when I restarted Windows 10 desktop this week, an app I'd never asked for did the following. First, immediately launched itself. Second, tried to convince me to migrate away from Chrome, giving me no discernible way to click away or say no. Three, pinned itself to my taskbar and desktop. And four, ignored my previous browser preference by asking me the next time I launched a website whether I was sure I wanted to use Chrome instead of Microsoft's oh-so-humble recommendation. Did I mention that as of this update, you can't uninstall Edge anymore? It all immediately made me think, 
What would the antitrust enforcers of the 90s who punished Microsoft for bundling Internet Explorer with Windows think about this modern abuse of Microsoft's platform? But mostly, I'm surprised Microsoft would shoot itself in the foot by stooping so low, using tactics I've only ever seen for purveyors of adware, spyware, and ransomware. I installed this copy of Windows with a disk I purchased, by the way. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I'd like to think I still own my desktop and get to decide what I put there. That's especially true of owners for Windows 7 and Windows 8, uh, I imagine, who are also receiving unwanted gift copies of the new Edge right now. And I'm not surprised that some very angry Windows users are already railing against the fact that this came as part of a forced Windows update, which Microsoft has already had a damn hard time justifying without invading people's desktop as well. It's going to be harder to buy the argument that forced updates are necessary for security when they're pulling double duty as an intrusive marketing tool. So that's the end of the article, and I have got to agree, that's just, that's just ridiculous. And I, I honestly, I'm, I would not doubt if this leads to a whole other set of class action lawsuits. The difference now is that Microsoft is not in control. Google Chrome owns the browser market, unfortunately. But nevertheless, this was forced. You weren't allowed to say no. You're not allowed to uninstall it anymore. The other thing this article didn't mention, by the way, is... About what it, it comes up and basically with a big splash screen saying, welcome to Microsoft Edge, and you can't like get out of it. You have to go through their process for quote-unquote get started. You have to really walk a fine line to basically not switch to Edge browser. But behind the scenes, <laughs> the browser, without asking your permission, imports all the information from your other browsers. So presumably, presumably this is things like, you know, any saved browsers, any saved websites you have, you know, favorites or bookmarks. Hopefully it's not passwords, but maybe, but it does it all without even asking you. So anyway, this is really horrible practice. You know, in a lot of ways, Microsoft has come a long way and they're doing a lot of great things. In particularly with Windows, they've, they've finally kind of given up on shoving that down everybody's throat. Um, you know, they're, they're allowing Linux and other things to be, to run on, on under Windows, but man. Did they do something like this? All right, next article, and this is sadly a little bit similar. Uh, and this is about uh, Comcast and Mozilla have struck a deal to basically switch the encrypted DNS from the default that Firefox has currently put in, which is Cloudflare, back to Comcast, which I don't know if I like that. But let me read this article. There's some mitigating factors here. So uh, this is from Ars Technica. Comcast is partnering with Mozilla to deploy encrypted DNS lookups on the Firefox browser, the company's announced today. Comcast's version of DNS over HTTPS, or DOH, pronounced DOE, will be turned on by default for Firefox users on Comcast's broadband network. But people will be able to switch to other options like Cloudflare and NextDNS. No availability date has been announced. Comcast is the first ISP, Internet Service Provider, to join Firefox's Trusted Recursive Resolver, or TRR, program. Cloudflare and NextDNS were already in Mozilla's program, which requires encrypted DNS providers to meet privacy and transparency criteria and pledge not to block or filter domains by default, quote, unless specifically required by law in the jurisdiction which the resolver operates, unquote. Quoting the article, again, it says, quote, adding ISPs in the TRR program paves the way for providing customers with the security of trusted DNS resolution while offering the benefits of a resolver provided by the ISP, such as parental control services and better optimized localized results, unquote. Firefox CTO Eric Rescorla said that, quote, bringing ISPs into the TRR program helps us protect user privacy online without disrupting existing user experiences, unquote. And here's a key thing. It says, joining Mozilla's program means that Comcast agreed that it won't, quote, retain, sell, or transfer 
to any third party, except as may be required by law, any personal information, IP addresses, or other user identifiers, or user query patterns, from the DNS queries sent from the Firefox browser, unquote. Mozilla and Comcast haven't said exactly when Comcast's encrypted DNS will be available on Firefox. Whenever it happens, the change should be automatic for users unless they've chosen a different DOH provider or disabled DOH altogether. Okay, so let me unpack a little bit of that. Um, So again, DNS over HTTPS or DOH is a way to encrypt your internet queries. And the way this, again, the way this works is DNS is like the internet's phone book. So if you want to call... Carrie Parker, in the old days, we don't have these anymore. You would look up, you'd go in the phone book for your local town or wherever you think Carrie lives, and you'd look up Carrie Parker. And if you found one of them or found the one on our street address that looks right, you would find his phone number and you can give him a call. So DNS is better than that. It's it's guaranteed to be unique. But in, in DNS, you would look up Amazon.com or Yahoo.com or Google.com. And those are host names. And when you look up those host names, it returns, the DNS service does, an IP address. And that is really how your stuff is routed. Well, the trouble with that is, is basically the DNS service that you're using now knows every place you go on the web. They know when you go there and how often you go there and all that kind of stuff because you're asking it to look up numbers for you. And because the Trump organization killed regulation that was put in place by the Obama administration and set to go into effect uh, shortly into Trump's term, ISPs are now free to collect all this data and to sell it. There are no regulations on this now, which is one of the reasons this whole DNS over HTTPS thing came up, was to give you another option for your DNS and to make it encrypted. Because otherwise, even if you use a different DNS provider, DNS, the service itself, the way the protocol is set up, is not encrypted. It's not private. So those are those requests, even if they weren't going to your ISP, which is the default in most cases, even if you explicitly overrode that and said, I want to use a different DNS service, until DOH, those requests were still open for your ISP to see as the request went by. So this is really kind of weird. So, you know, all, all the ISPs got really ticked off when Firefox did this and made the, made it the default. And Firefox response was like, Hey, if you want to, we'll be happy to put you as our, put you back as the DNS provider, as long as you abide by these privacy rules. And that apparently is what's going on here. Comcast is the first major ISP to uh, attempt this program. Now, We'll, we'll see, you know, even if they're not collecting data on you, there are still things that, that the DNS provider can do that will make money for them. Like, have you ever noticed when you go to enter a, a web address that's wrong, what you're supposed to get in that case is what's called a 404 not found. That's the internet protocol saying, I don't know what that address is. I don't know where to send your request. But one of the things that these DNS providers do, like your ISP provider is when it, when it, instead of giving you the simple, eh, I don't know, answer, it says it gives you some other helpful things, which in this case is usually advertising. Like you said this, but maybe you meant this. Or hey, while you're not finding this web page, maybe you want to try these other web pages. So even if it's not collecting your data and and selling it, you know that's still annoying a lot of times for uh, to use your ISP's DNS provider. Anyway, if you use Firefox, like I hope you do, and like I've mentioned many times, uh, by default, your DNS over HTTPS, I believe, is on by default and then set to Cloudflare by default. I totally trust Cloudflare. So if you're a Comcast or Xfinity customer, be on the lookout for a Firefox change soon that may, sounds like it might automatically switch you to Comcast. Uh, and if so, you'll have to, you're going to want to switch it back. But if somehow you miss it, let's hope that Comcast abides by these privacy rules and doesn't sell your data. 
All right, folks, we're at the last, last article, and uh, this will lead into our tip of the week. And they are both short, but they are both very important. So again, it, it, it's about TikTok, and that's T-I-K-T-O-K, which is a kind of a new social media app, and it's kind of like Vine used to be, or somewhat like Instagram and Snapchat, where you create these short little videos and you share them with friends. Now, TikTok is a is from a company that is owned by the Chinese government. And I'm not saying it's a Chinese company. I'm saying like every like most things in China, the it is effectively owned by the Chinese government, which should already be a red flag. This app is honestly mostly popular right now in uh in Asia, India, it's a really big thing in India. Uh, but there are still lots of, uh, especially younger kids here in the U.S. who have uh, started using it too. So this article is going to talk about one problem, but there's actually many. Uh, so let me let me read this first. It's from Mac Rumors, and it says the following. It says, a new feature in iOS 14, which, by the way, that's what I want to talk about hopefully sometime soon. This is the new operating system coming out for iPhones and iPads uh, that will probably debut with the new iPhones in September. Uh, a new feature in iOS 14 alerts users when apps read the clipboard. And it turns out some apps have been reading clipboard data excessively. Now, clipboard, that's the, that when you do a copy-paste, uh, when you copy something, that whatever you've copied is sitting on the clipboard, a virtual clipboard, uh, so that you can then take that text or whatever you've copied and paste it somewhere else, usually in a different application. Back to the article, it says, TikTok users who upgraded to iOS 14, for example, and this would have been a beta program. This is not available to most people yet. This would have been a developer beta only quickly noticed constant alerts warning them that TikTok was accessing the clipboard every few seconds. After being caught, TikTok now said that it's removing the feature. In a statement to the Telegraph, TikTok said that it accessed the clipboard to identify spammy behavior. And this is a quote from there, from TikTok. It says, Following the beta release of iOS 14 on June 22nd, users saw notifications while using a number of popular apps. For TikTok, this was triggered by a feature designed to identify repetitive, spammy behavior. You have already submitted an updated version of the app to the App Store, removing the anti-spam feature to eliminate any potential confusion. TikTok is committed to protecting users' privacy and being transparent about how our app works, unquote. An update to remove the feature has already been submitted to the App Store, and a download of the new update confirms that TikTok no longer appears to be accessing the clipboard. TikTok did not say whether the feature would be removed from Android devices, nor whether clipboard data was ever stored or moved from user devices. Other apps have also been called out for reading the clipboard, including Starbucks, Overstock, AccuWeather, several news apps, and more. Prior to when iOS 14 was released, a pair of developers sounded an alarm, letting users and Apple know that iPhone and iPad apps were quietly accessing the clipboard. Apple's new iOS 14 feature appears to have been added in response, and apps are no longer able to read the clipboard without users knowing exactly what's going on. Okay, so we're going to talk about that Apple feature coming in the future. And, you know, hopefully it was actually in response to these researchers, you know, uh, raising the alarm. So the thing to realize is this is this is normal. Uh, this is the way clipboards work. If I want to copy something from a web page and paste it into Microsoft Word, there's the operating system has to put that in the clipboard. And, and then Microsoft Word has to be able to access that clipboard. But here's the thing. The, what this is basically saying is that any app running on your phone could be looking at the contents of your clipboard. So if you copied a social security number, a phone number, a credit card number, a password, and wanted to paste it somewhere else in one of your other apps, what this is basically saying is that TikTok has been reading all of that information, like every few seconds. 
And what is it doing with it? I don't think we really know the answer to that question yet. But it's certainly suspicious. And it, you know, it's possible. I mean, I don't know what they mean about preventing spammy behavior. I think that's a total lark. But they did mention, and the article does mention, that other apps have been caught doing this too. And until iOS 14 came along, which actually told you every time that an app is, you know, trying to copy your clipboard and warning you about it, this was invisible. This was happening behind the scenes, and you just didn't know it was happening. Now, you might be interested to know that uh, LastPass, for example, and I'm sure other password um, and utilities do this as well, when you copy a password to paste it somewhere else, as soon as you paste that password, LastPass clears your clipboard. So it's not still sitting on your clipboard for some other app to eventually find. But this iOS 14 feature is is even a step better, and you're probably going to be surprised. Well, maybe by the time this comes out, all the apps that are doing this now and abusing this feature will stop abusing it. So by the time that everybody gets this feature, you're not going to get all these pop-ups saying, hey, just so you know, this other app is trying to access the clipboard right now. Do you want to allow that? You know, that would get really annoying if it was happening dozens of times. But it sounds like that is what's going on now, because a lot of these apps, for whatever reason, are scanning the clipboard even when they're not expecting you to paste something into their app. But this is just the tip of the iceberg, folks. I'm seeing a lot of, uh, and this leads right into our tip of the week, I'm seeing a lot of really bad, scary reports about TikTok. Um, Some other developer, and this hasn't, as far as I know, this hasn't been verified by other security researchers, but this one guy who supposedly reverse-engineered the TikTok app found that it was doing collecting all sorts of information about you and reporting it back to someplace in China. Now, again, it's from a company in China. So, so it's not like, you know, that's surprising. But again, any, anything owned by a Chinese company at this point, I would say is suspect. And if you could avoid it, I would. I mean, look at Huawei, which was the company that basically America boycotted completely saying no, no American company, or at least no American federal contract company is allowed to use Huawei parts. And, you know, in the past, Huawei has definitely been shown to uh, steal a lot of intellectual property, but the real worry is spying. So I don't want to get all conspiratorial and tinfoil hat and black helicopter, but I'm just saying, if, (laughs) if you use TikTok, I would stop. Certainly if your kids are using it, I would encourage them to delete the application. And then I'll just go in general. And so my tip of the week really is not just tick. I mean, delete TikTok because I think it's just, I, I think we're just the, seeing the tip of the iceberg. I think we're going to get a lot more scary stuff about these guys. You know, they may try to clean up their act, act, but given what they've already been doing, I just, I couldn't trust them. But it's also just a good time to go through your phones, go through your iPad, even your computers, find those applications you are no longer using and delete them. In most cases, you could probably just re-download them again someday if you've realized that, oh, well, you know what? I actually did need that application. Or I didn't need it for a while, and now I do. And so you can just download it again. But two things. First of all, all software has bugs. And so the more apps you have on your phone, the more attack surface you have, the more chinks you probably have in your overall security armor. And then there's privacy, too. Uh, the more these apps, these apps are doing everything they can to get as much information on you as possible, as is obvious now with this clipboard stuff. And the thing before that was location tracking. A lot of these apps that ask for permission for your location, even things that needed it, like weather apps, were turning around and monetizing your location data. So it's hard to know who to trust. Apple is really cracking down on a lot of the stuff, which is great. There's some really cool features coming in iOS 14 and Mac OS Big Sur that I'm going to be talking about soon. But at the end of the day, go through whatever applications you have that you're no longer using and just delete them. 
The other, the other reason you want to do that actually is if it happens to be an older application that's no longer getting updates, like the company has just stopped working on that app or maybe went out of business or got bought by somebody else, whatever security bugs are in that application are never going to be fixed. So if you're not using it, delete it. All right, everybody, that was a long one. Thanks for hanging in there. I had so much stuff to cover. There's actually some articles I couldn't even get to, um, but I tried to cover the stuff I thought was most important and the most interesting. We've got another interview coming up next week. I'll be talking with Renee Dudley from ProPublica, a great organization. She's been, she and her uh, publication have been doing a lot of stories on ransomware, some really interesting aspects of ransomware, including extortion aspects. We're going to talk about that and uh, the whole cyber insurance industry and that sort of thing. So it's a very interesting conversation. That'll be coming up next week, probably a two-parter. So it'll probably be next week and the week after. And I know I've said my fourth edition of the book is coming and it will be out soon, but no reason to wait, especially with the deal that's still going on right now. It ends today. That would be Monday, July 6th. And that is the Humble Bundle deal from A-Press. There's 20 books in the series. Uh, There's three tiers, $1, $8, and $15. If you just buy the $1 tier, you'll get my book and four other cybersecurity books. So that's you can get my book right now, today only, last day, uh, for a buck. This is obviously the electronic version, but still. You can put it on your Kindle. You can read it on your computer. 400 pages, 150 tips, plus lots of great information there. And that can tide you over till the fourth edition comes out. So the website again is Humble Bundle, H-U-M-B-L-E-B-U-N-D-L-E.com. Uh, you'll see it there. It's called Secure Your Stuff. It's from A-Press. If you spent, if you go for the full $15, you get basically $717 worth of books. But again, if you just want to spend a buck, you'll at least get mine and four other books. It's hard to beat that. All right, that'll do it. Everybody stay safe out there. Stay healthy. Stay home when you can. And as always, don't get caught with your garbage down.